HRN listeners. As we celebrate our 15th year, we are deepening our commitment to giving voice to the next generation of food system storytellers, and we need your help. Our internship and fellowship programs help activate new possibilities for underrepresented and underestimated young people through experiential journalism, audio engineering, and production training. Through these unique programs, HRN helps food equity stewards build essential workforce readiness skills that expand their potential and foster economic mobility. Please consider supporting these critical programs. And with a minimum donation, you can be entered to win a dinner for two at an amazing restaurant in one of eight cities and tickets to a concert at a great venue in one of those cities. We have incredible partners across the country who have donated as they also share our passion for helping to educate the next generation of food system storytellers. Check out heritageradionetwork.org 15 to donate and enter to win today. That's heritageradionetwork.org 15 to donate and enter to win today. And make sure you donate before March 31st. Thank you. This episode of Meet and 3 is brought to you by the Michigan Cherry Committee. Learn about the wonderfully tart Montmorency cherry at choosecherries.com. This episode is brought to you by Bin to Table, a monthly food subscription service for folks who want to cook with the best pantry ingredients on the planet. Learn more at bintotable.com and use the code HRN at checkout to get $20 off your first month. My name is Esther Trukinski, and I'm a member of the Heritage Radio Board. I was asked whether I'm going to be making a brisket for Rosh Hashanah, and the answer is, of course I am. Um, the preparation I'm using is my mother's traditional recipe with lots of tomatoes and vegetables and wine, cooked really slowly for at low temperatures for a long, long time. We keep a kosher house, so all the meat in the house that's eaten by both the humans and the dogs come from our monthly runs down to the city to the kosher butcher. Um, but I do use second cut with lots of fat. So the flavor and the texture is as rich and as luxurious as possible. I'm looking forward to eating it all by myself. While Labor Day barbecues are now behind us, many people visited their butchers this week to procure a brisket for Rosh Hashanah, the Jewish New Year. Others are already making plans for how they'll share turkey together this Thanksgiving while being cautious about COVID-19. Regardless of the occasion, more and more people are buying meat from local suppliers. And this week, we're spotlighting the people who prepare our meat before it reaches our plates. We hear from butchers who are working to introduce customers to new cuts and create more localized food supply chains. We investigate an innovation in retail that allows for socially distant shopping, and we explore the staggering distances some small meat producers have to travel to reach a slaughterhouse. Plus, we hear from one master of charcuterie who isn't using meat at all. I'm Katie Mosman-Wadler, and this is Meat and Three. Meat and Three. Meat and Three. Meat and Three. One meat, three sides. Food, news, and storytelling. A square meal for your ears. Meat and Three. For our first story, we turn to McGill Webb, who spoke to Heather Merrill Thomason, the founder of Primal Supply Meats, about how her whole animal butcher shop is changing the butchery industry for the better. After industrial meat processing plants shut down during the pandemic, meat shortages and high prices caught the attention of consumers. But problems with the meat supply chain aren't new. In fact, they are the reason Heather became a butcher in 2012. I had a wild idea that if I learned butchery, maybe I could start to be, you know, kind of a solution in that 
in that problem and start to be kind of a link in the supply chain. Fast forward to 2016 and Heather has founded Primal Supply Meats in Philadelphia, Pennsylvania. Heather's business model puts a premium on working with regional farmers who treat their animals and the land with care. Her goal is to bolster the local economy and create an alternative supply chain. The farmers, the processors that we work with, the chefs and restaurants that we supply, the home cooks in Philadelphia, I really believe that building this up and supporting this community, that we can kind of keep the money in the local economy and we can improve those resources and improve access for everyone. As a whole animal butchery, Primal Supply ensures farmers that they will purchase the entire animal. This gives farmers the financial security they need to focus on their farms. They can really focus on giving the animals that are being raised for meat the best life, and they can really focus on their land, and they can know that when those animals are ready for market, that they have you know a committed place for them to go where they'll be sold, rather than then having to kind of head to the farmer's market and hustle it piece by piece. So, you know, that gives them security and um, it just kind of deepens our commitment. By offering to take the entire animal off the farmer's hands, she is now responsible for finding a home not only for the specialty cuts like hanger steaks and skirt steaks, but also for the bones, fat and organs of the animals. Heather ensures there is as little waste as possible. That farmer knows that they raise they raise that animal and they sell us the whole thing. So we, you know, it's not just meat, it's also bones and fat and organs and things like that. And just even, you know, there are things that there's a lot of on an animal, like ground beef or um, certain kind of larger cuts. Like, you know, there's a decent amount of uh, brisket and pork butt to go around, but there's only so many hanger steaks or skirt steaks. Heather hopes that by educating consumers and encouraging them to try new cuts, that collectively communities can create a better supply chain and support their local farmers with better lives for the animals and the farmers who take care of them. And of course, better food on our plates. Next up, Tosh Kimmel speaks with two Northern California farmers about the closure of their local slaughterhouse and its effects on their livelihood. As a child growing up in Petaluma, California, I remember driving by the local slaughterhouse, then called Rancho, almost daily. It sat at the entrance of town as a reminder of the agrarian past, present, and presumed future of my home. I could never have known then that the same slaughterhouse would come to threaten the legacy of local agriculture it once symbolized. After the USDA recalled 8.7 million pounds of meat processed at Rancho in 2014, the slaughterhouse nearly closed for good. It was then that local farm Marin Sun Farms bought the facility, initially offering the same vital services to the community. However, after initially blaming the expansion of their own business, lack of staff due to the marijuana industry, and finally the farmers themselves for not following regulations, they closed their doors to other independent meat producers, leaving small farmers and ranchers to flounder. That particular slaughter yard has been in, uh, in production for, I don't know how long, in, in Petaluma, 75 years, something like that. The Marinson Farms is a relatively new owner of that slaughter yard. It's pretty well understood that they're just trying to push people out of the market. They're trying to make it as difficult as possible for other ranchers to do what they're doing. That's Josh Norwood, Petaluma restaurant owner and cattle rancher. With only a handful of slaughterhouses remaining in California, Marin Sun Farms was the only place within 200 miles where he could process his animals to USDA standards. As USDA approval is the only legal way to get meat to market, 
this was an invaluable resource and a cornerstone of his farm-to-table business. While Marin Sun Farm's decision to stop serving outside meat producers may seem like a local issue, it's actually part of a larger pattern of consolidation in the meat industry. In their bid to be the new owners, they, they made a lot of uh, promises to the community to keep that slaughter yard as a community resource. Right now, I think there's about six um, USDA facilities available to private um, ranches, that, w- that would be us, um, in all of California. Now it's much more difficult to go USDA. It's, you know, it's more expensive, it's more time consuming, and it's a bigger stress on the animals. I still have the cows and we're still doing it. I'm just loading them up into a trailer and taking them to Chico to get it done. I mean, um, you know, we have not a huge herd, but it's a lot of animals. You know, even if I wanted to get rid of all of them, it would, it's a, it's a difficult thing to do. Slaughterhouses are perhaps the most fragile and critical stop in the food production chain. Though many of us prefer not to think about what goes on inside of them, understanding the process of how our food makes it to market is an important facet of being a critical consumer. And while some, like Norwit, have kept business going by raising prices and transporting their animals nearly 200 miles away, others, like farmer and restaurant owner Tony Najola, have given up altogether. Marin Sun Farms took over that enterprise, and for three or four years, offered the same services as the previous operators. Um, Basically, we would slaughter one pig every other week. Um, This went on for years, and it satisfied our needs for pork and our ability to raise our own animals and feature that on our menu. Uh, Once Marin Sun Farms shut us out, we were no longer able to do that. I can trailer my animals, take them hours away to have them processed elsewhere, or I can just give up. And ranching and farming being as difficult as it is, you know, it's just one thing after another. And at some point you just give up. Najola raised hogs and grew veggies, which he would then serve at his restaurant, Central Market. Now, with no way to process the animals, he's had to stop. When I asked him what he did with his herd, he said, We're not going to talk about that. The story of ranchers and farmers being derailed by an inability to locally slaughter their meat is not unique or isolated. In fact, the consolidation of the meat industry has been decades in the making. And with the market for locally sourced, pasture-raised meat only growing, it seems contradictory that the access to USDA facilities which makes small meat business viable continues to dwindle. The discrepancy seems to point to a greater problem in the meat industry, a supply chain which bolsters cheap industrial meat while actively creating barriers for sustainable food to flourish. We'll be right back with more Meat in 3 after a short break. This episode of Meat and 3 is brought to you by the Michigan Cherry Committee, representing 75% of U.S.-grown Montmorency tart cherry production. With over 100 articles published in health journals stating the vast health benefits of Michigan's superfruit, it's best to choose the cherry with more. U.S. Montmorency tart cherries, 
They're available year-round, dried, frozen, canned, juice, and concentrate. Learn more about the wonderfully U.S.-grown Montmorency Tart Cherry at ChooseCherries.com. This episode is brought to you by Bin to Table, a monthly food subscription service for folks who want to cook with the best pantry ingredients on the planet, founded by Ben Simon. After working for President Obama, Ben spent five years traveling the world for Greenpeace, campaigning on climate change and sustainable agriculture. He always kept his eye out for delicious food to bring back home. Now, with everyone's travels on hold and home cooking more important than ever, Ben's subscriptions provide a way for home cooks to experience different food cultures each month and put together nourishing, delicious meals with the best pantry items on the planet. With Taste the World, get a new shipment of different best-in-class ingredients to explore a new cuisine each month, along with tips and tricks to help out. We're talking delicious single-origin spices, cold-pressed olive oil, beautiful sauces, and lots of ways to use them. There's also an essential subscription which gets you a delicious assortment of heirloom, hard-to-find recipe staples. You can also get both each month with the full Ben to Table box subscription. Learn more at bentotable.com and use the code HRN at checkout to get $20 off your first month, and Ben to Table will donate $10 to HRN. Welcome back to Meat in 3. Our next story dives into the smoky flavors of pastrami and sausages. In a surprise twist, these dishes don't include any meat. Dylan Hoyer talks to Amanda Cohen, the chef and owner of Dirt Candy in New York City, about vegetable charcuterie. It's like a smoked and grilled uh, center stalk of the broccoli, and then it gets uh, finished with some mustard barbecue sauce and sauerkraut. And you bite into it and you're like, oh, is it a hot dog or is it a piece of broccoli? And that's a really fun, like, little uh, mind play we have with our guests. Dirt Candy was founded in 2008 on New York's Lower East Side. In addition to her broccoli dogs, Amanda is well-known for dishes like mushroom foie gras and fennel sausage. Her beet pastrami is thinly sliced to look like deli meat, in addition to capturing the spiced, briny flavor of a brisket sandwich. More than considering Dirt Candy a vegetarian restaurant, Amanda considers it a vegetable restaurant. The environment and animal rights and all that, those are like really noble pursuits. But my pursuit at Dirt Candy is making the best tasting vegetables anywhere in the world. The path towards achieving this goal required showing consumers and critics that vegetables were worthy of attention and acclaim. I think you already have a cuisine that's pretty much dismissed by the mainstream. Certainly it's less dismissed than it was, uh, but for many years, you know, it was, people would sort of just, you know, ignore you when you were like, I'm a vegetarian chef. You couldn't possibly have as much skill as the mainstream chef. Amanda has made a lot of headway. Jerk Candy was named one of the 10 restaurants changing America now in Paul Friedman's 2016 book, The 10 Restaurants That Changed America. The restaurant has been listed on the Michelin Guide for five years in a row, and Amanda was the first vegetarian contestant to compete on Iron Chef. For all these reasons, she was surprised to be excluded from a recent article in the New York Times about vegan charcuterie, spotlighting watermelon ham and radish prosciutto as, quote, recent inventions. Even if these specific dishes are recent developments, this cuisine is not a new trend. I was pretty disappointed. Um... I feel like I've been doing this cuisine 
for uh, longer than than most people have. And and I really admire what everybody has done in that article. And I think they're taking this and they're pushing into new directions. And that's exciting for me because then I get to see what they're doing and play off of it. But not to acknowledge sort of who came first in the history of this food to me is pretty insulting. And basically, you know, kind of uh, not only writes me out of the history, but it also, um, you know, writes the people, the right sort of vegetarian food out of the history of vegetarian food. The article does feature one vegetarian chef, but the writer admits the story focuses on those with, quote, a decidedly carnivorous bent. Amanda isn't only feeling snubbed as a vegetarian, however. Women are also glaringly absent from the article. And then you have being a female chef, on the other hand, and, you know, you might as well just give up right away. <laughs> you know, that's, that's this really big mountain that you have to sort of keep climbing over and over again. And when you think you've gotten to the top, you realize that there's a whole other mountain still waiting for you. Amanda is a longtime critic of underrepresentation in food media. In 2017, during the Me Too movement, she wrote an op-ed asking, now you finally care about female chefs? She spoke about her reluctance to be depicted as a victim and her eagerness to be covered because of her cooking instead. The article she wrote included a list of more than 60 women chefs who deserve mainstream attention. Today, she employs a mostly female kitchen and continues to push herself to create the most delicious vegetables in the world. She wants to see the media landscape change, but she isn't waiting up for it. Butcher shops tend to resemble one another in both look and feeling. A knowledgeable meat seller in a clean white apron wraps your cut of choice in waxed paper and might even offer a suggestion. Hannah Forden catches up with one Hudson Valley-based butcher about how he's turning this model on its head and creating an innovative tool to support retailers during COVID-19. In 2018, a lifetime ago, and Meat and Three's very first season, I did a story about my butcher. First of all, thank you for having me again. I can't believe it's been two years. I grew up in the Hudson Valley, and Josh Applestone was the coolest butcher around. He first opened Fleischer's in Kingston, New York, then popped up all over the trendiest parts of New York City. He and his wife and business partner Jessica made an old-school butcher counter the hottest new thing. They've since moved on from Fleischer's. Josh's latest concept is grounded in the same values as the original, but looks and sounds very different. Applestone Meat Company, Josh's newest venture, is built around meat vending machines. Picture a chic version of a soda machine, navy blue and white, but it's loaded with pasture-raised beef and artisanal hot dogs with price points much lower than any posh butcher shop. Two years ago, when I first shared the story about Applestone, the idea of such an impersonal transaction was difficult for some to imagine. The concept was fun, a novelty with the secret mission to improve access to affordable, high-quality meat. But the world has changed a lot since then. And the world of food service, both in dining and retail, is in a state of complete and utter uncertainty. 
I thought about Applestones a lot during the early days of the pandemic, when venturing to the grocery store felt just about as daunting as scaling Mount Everest. I wanted to know what his thoughts were on the future of grocery shopping, of buying food, because I hadn't realized how ahead of the curve he was until disaster hit. Even before the virus, Josh wanted to make retail better. And that passion continues into the pandemic. Shopping is not a relaxing experience. Everyone thinks it's like, oh, it's good. It's, good. it's not relaxing. You know, you're doing math in your head all the time. You don't want to forget something. God forbid you're not the one who normally does it. So, you know, it's like what I learned. People are terrified now. Everyone's wearing masks and like kids are people are sending kids to school and all this shit's going on. It's like the world's fucking falling apart. And what we're dealing with is like then they have to go shopping in a way they've never shopped before. Josh has a unique perspective. He's a butcher and a retail success story who is now running what is essentially a tech company. His work requires site visits to farms, as well as designing and testing a high-tech, refrigerated mini-store. His current locations are small retail spaces with numerous machines that are housed away from the elements, but allow 24-hour access. The current model looks almost exactly like a typical office vending machine. Josh's big pursuit is ease and intuitiveness. The first model of his vending machines are a little hard to use at first. There's a video on their website with instructions, but even with that support, a lot of customers get confused. So he's working on version two. The new machines I have coming out are really going to work really well because we see the problems with people using vending machines or using just like automated sales. And it really needs to be dialed into a level where... It's not like you can't train people how to how to buy or re, or use retail differently because you definitely can. It's just a matter of how fast can you train them. And the ones that can get tra- the ones that have an intuitive experience, the ones that walk into a store and walk out like that was nothing. That is a winner. And we're not there yet. We're almost there. The new machines will do it because the new machines mimic a lot of transactions, a lot of things that people do every day. So the way when I was designing them, I was talking, you know, my team, I was like, it has to be like opening a door. No one thinks about how to open a door. So when does, you know, it's like a far side cartoon. Everyone knows how to open a door. Everyone knows how to open up a soda can. Applestone's business plans for the future include more locations where customers can access 24-7, pay with a credit card or SNAP benefits, and most importantly, buy meat safely. He plans on leasing his machines to other businesses. Once the vending machine itself is perfected, it can be used for a broad range of products, from wine to pharmaceuticals. You got to be lead by example. We're from immigrants. You know, it's like we know our family came here and saw gold brick, you know, line gold brick streets because where they came from was not fucking working. And one thing that Trump cannot take away from us is the land of opportunity that this really is. It's not like hoarding masks, but it's like you can really change and make it easier. Find what people need and just twist your model to it. Because, I mean, we're, 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 we serve at the pleasure of our customers. You can visit Applestone Meat Company's Automats in Stone Ridge and Hudson, New York, with new locations in Manhattan and Westchester coming soon. Listen to my 2018 interview with Josh by scrolling back to episode number seven of Meat and Three. It's called Animals and Industry. 
That's our show. Thanks for listening. Special thanks this week to McGill Webb and Tosh Kimmel. Meet and Three is produced by Hannah Forden, Matt Patterson, Kat Johnson, Dylan Hoyer, and me, Katie Mosman-Wadler. Our audio engineer is Matt Patterson. Our theme song was composed by Breakmaster Cylinder. This program is supported in part by public funds from the New York City Department of Cultural Affairs in partnership with the City Council. Meet and Three is powered by Simplecast. Meet and Three is a production of Heritage Radio Network, the world's pioneer food radio station. Learn more at heritageradionetwork.org and follow us at heritage underscore radio. And please stay in touch. Whether you have a story idea or would just like to say hey, write us at ideas at meetn3.nyc. That's all spelled out. <laughs>